0: You're listening to Story Power, a podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Andre Henry is an award-winning singer-songwriter. He's also an award-winning writer and sought-after speaker on the topics of racism and building nonviolent movements for social progress. His message can be summed up in a single lyric. It doesn't have to be this way. Welcome to the show, Andre. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I'm I'm excited that you're back. You are actually one of my favorite people to interview because I just (laughs) have to ask a question or two and you go. And it always works out where like I'll have a set of questions together for you and you're probably the one person that I do this with because usually I just show up and I'm like, hey, let's talk and all of this. But I'm like, no, I need to think about this ahead of time with Andre. (laughs) And when I do that, you manage to go ahead and like answer my question without me even asking it. So I'm like, all right, this is good. This is really good.
1: You know, I'm the first time I've heard that actually.
0: (laughs) I believe it. Seriously. I mean, even when we were talking in Twitter space, I was like, damn it, he's doing it again. I'm just going (laughs) to sit here and nod my head and nobody's even going to see it. (laughs) Anyway, so a lot of people who follow me probably follow me because of the podcasting that I did was speaking of racism. Um, And a lot of people who are listening probably follow you as well because they know you from your voice and what you do in your work in racial justice. But today I want to focus on a different aspect of your justice work. And I'm really excited Mm -hmm. about the music that you create and and how you are developing your voice in that. And I would love to hear about the new song that you're going to be releasing soon.
1: Yeah. Um so yeah, um so we're we're just putting out uh, a song called it doesn't have to be this way. It's a remake of, you know, of uh, the song it doesn't have to be this way that I put out in 2017. Might have been earlier. I think it was 2017 I put out the original version of it doesn't have to be this way. I wrote it doesn't have, I wrote the original it doesn't have to be this way about the refugee crisis that was going on at the time uh the migrant crisis and um and also just kind of like a statement about social injustice in general you know like the last verse of that song says i hear the beast declare his lies see all the people with flags held high i hear the world descend in fire but it doesn't have to be this way i was actually like writing about donald trump and how all these people were you know coming to these rallies and so excited about you know this overt white supremacist right and um i was really intentional about the aesthetic of that original version of it doesn't have to be this way um making it like this very futuristic electronic reggae you know uh song and so my team at the time we understood that like musicians the way that we are able to support ourselves really is not it's not primarily through people streaming our music, it's by creating merch that people can wear. So um, my team had this conversation, we're like, you know, people really follow my music for the words, for the lyrics. So we should start putting lyrics on t-shirts. We're like, okay, well, what lyric should we put on a shirt? So we shows it doesn't have to be this way. Now (laughs) little did I know that putting this lyric on a t-shirt was going to take off in a way that I hadn't anticipated because all kinds of people around the world actually ordered this t-shirt. Yeah. Not even realizing that, you know, this is a Lyric t-shirt, you know, like they, and the funny thing is that we we sold the t-shirt with the song. So like the song came with it and still somehow people, you know, people didn't realize that, you know, this was one of my songs. Part of how that happened was I, I worked with a marketing company a couple of years before that who asked me you know as a musician well what is something that you can create every week because you know i couldn't produce a song a week at that time so what's something you could produce every week and i was like well i could write you know i can make youtube videos and stuff like that so i already had this rhythm of writing every week creating videos about social justice every week and then just thinking all right well between between those weeks i'll be able to really you know Though That content in between song releases will help bridge you know the gap so I don't just disappear when I'm not releasing music. But I think what happened was people saw so much of my writing and so much of my speaking online that it didn't really occur to them that like, yeah, this prime all of this has primarily come out of his music, you know when it when it says singer songwriter in his bio, like. <laughs> he really means it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So a lot of people yeah. don't know that, you know, I'm an award-winning singer songwriter and that's where my racial justice work actually stems from. So anyway, I say all that to tell the story of this new version of it doesn't have to be this way. So that also that story doesn't get lost. Like this is this is a new version of an old song. Um, and yeah, you know, I I feel like in this particular version I'm taking a lot of what I have been, you know, saying over the past six years, my organizing experience over the past six years, my studies in Nonviolent Struggle and all of that. And it's really come together in this version of the song in a way that's really beautiful. And my attitude has changed about how I'm producing the music now too. And I think that you can hear that in in the song now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because honestly, like I've kind of worked with you on the Hope and Hard Pills allies side of things. I came to know you through the internet, really, through your writing Mm -hmm. and work. And this is really the first time I'm hearing this story about this coming out of your music and how connected all of that is. So even right now, like, I'm learning this about you. (laughs) So that's really interesting. I mean, it's a great marketing approach, right? Because what it did was catapult you in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really did. And what what I always said about the music industry is, well, first off, I lost interest in the like music industry, right? Like, because, you know, I worked, you know, I lived in New York for a long time. I was working as a singer songwriter. I've worked with some of the, you know, some legendary iconic songwriters and producers there and stuff and what i saw in the music industry was that the there was such, there's such like a, a common sense and we talk about this a lot with me right like when we talk about common sense how it's shaped by power and there is something that we call common sense that is really just it's the way that society has uh formed us to think right about the world right and so like when i so i say that there is a common sense in the music industry about Conscious music, right? So when I released in 2014, I released a song called "Roses While We're Young," and I wrote this song because I was inspired by that movie "Seeking a Friend for the End of the World" with uh, S- Steve Carell and Kira Knightley. Is that her name? I think I think it's Kira Knightley. That's a person, it's right? So. <laughs> I think it is. That's an it that's is. an actor <laughs> person. Okay, I'm pretty sure that that's I'm pretty sure that that's the actor. And, you know, that movie was all about how, you know, in 2012, there was all this stuff about the Mayan calendar and, you know, the end of the world, December 25th. So I write this song called Roses While We're Young, imagining like what, you know, if if I was writing a song to my loved ones that I wasn't going to get to see before a meteor strikes the earth, what would I say? So I wrote the song called Roses While We're Young. And I had a manager at the time... And we put out roses while we're young the music video got like a hundred thousand views like within a week or something like that it was it was crazy it was like the the most engagement i'd had on anything i put online um so fast forward a couple years later um eric garner is killed in, in new york city and i was living there at the time so i write this song called america about you know, systemic I mean at, at the time I didn't even know the term. I oh wait, I barely knew the term systemic racism. This is like 2015,
0: right?
1: Yeah. I think I just heard the term systemic racism the year before, but I knew I knew that what happened to Eric Garner could happen to me. I knew that it was more likely to happen to me than my white friends. So I write this song called America. It's not a very good song, that's why it's not on Spotify. <laughs> but <laughs> but <laughs> But I wrote it and I talked to my I talked to my manager about putting this song out and she said, well, if you put this song out after Roses While We're Young, then, you know, um, you're going to become the serious issues guy. And I realized that at the time, like that was like a problem for her. Right. Like, right, right. like to her, that would not have been a good thing. Mm-hmm. And. I still hadn't had, like, the moment where I said, forget this. I'm going to talk about racism with my every waking breath. That wouldn't happen for another year. Yeah. So when she said that, I was like, oh, okay. And so I, I did shy away from, like, releasing America then. I didn't release America till 2017, you know, even though I had written it then, right?
0: Oh,
1: wow. So... There was another guy that I that I used to run into on the music scene in, in New York, and he claimed that he was a ghostwriter for R. Kelly and Britney Spears and all these other people. You know, everybody... It's really easy to claim you're a ghostwriter for, like, major celebrities, because, like, how could I prove you wrong, right? So, anyway, he claims that he's this, right. that, the other. And he's one of those guys who, like, has all this unsolicited advice. Every time he sees me, he, like, wants to tell me, like, how, what I should be doing and how I should be doing it. And... um. I always felt like I had, like, I was going to have my own path of how I build a platform as a musician and how I introduce my music to the world. But these, this conversation, like, with my my former manager and with this guy that I'm going to tell you what he said, like, kind of solidified it for me. So he kept saying, like, you have to mix the medicine with in, in with the orange juice, you know? And so it's like this. So basically what these people were telling me, and there are more stories, but These these people were telling me that were more connected to like the mainstream music industry was that if I had, if I really had something to say, that I had to be vague about it or I had to make sure that I create enough fluff so that it could be received well. And basically just telling me that it won't sell. It won't sell records, right? But there was one music coach that I had around that time. I'm starting to get choked up as I'm thinking about it. Um, and her name is Carrie Cole, and I would recommend her to any musician, any artist who, like, is trying to find out who they are as an artist. I met Carrie in 2013 because I heard her speaking on, like, a group call with a bunch of new music industry people. So these are folks who were not talking about getting signed to a record label, not talking about, you know, going through the front door of the music industry. These are folks who are talking about building your music business online. And Carrie spoke with so much passion about what it takes to be an artist that I was just really moved and I was like, I want to work with her. So I reached out to her yeah. and I had a meeting at, at her office and I walk in and I sit down and she listens to my music and she looks at me and she says, I see someone like Bob Marley in you. And my music at the time was not really strong or it wasn't a strong reggae sound. It was more like classic R&B, classic soul, Sounded more like Stevie Wonder, way more like Stevie Wonder than Bob Marley. But she looked at me and she said, I see like a Bob Marley figure in you. And I just feel like you really have something to say. Right. Mm -hmm. But the songs that I had played for her were mostly love songs, but Roses While We're Young was in there. Mm -hmm. And Roses While We're Young was a reggae song, (laughs) like a hip hop reggae. It started as a reggae song. She said that. And by um, 2016, I think it was. Yeah, by 2016, I had started saying to myself, if I'm going to get into the music industry, it's going to be through the side door, not the front door. Because going through the front door means all of this, like dealing with all these corrupt politics. It means jumping through hoops. You know, when we talk about like, when we talk about social justice and like, you know, Me Too, uh, stuff like that, like there there were people who, you know, were trying to tell me like, you know, or basically, you know, there are people who try trying to like see what they could exploit, basically. Right. How could they take advantage of, of a young artist that's trying to make it? So I said, I'm going to go through the side door. And I think that what you saw and what people have seen is this approach of me saying like. I'm going to make music, but I'm going to do it on my terms, right? Yeah. Like, and I'm going to, you know, and I'm going to build this in a way that feels authentic and natural to me, and it's going to mean something, right? So I had this political awakening in 2016 when I watched Philando Castile bleed to death on Facebook Live. Actually, let me just back up one one year, because I think I told you this story already, but, you know, it was really 2015 after the after Dylan Roof, you know, walked into Emmanuel AME in South Carolina and shot nine parishioners then I sat down in my house. I was in Pasadena at the time. And I said, okay, I need to do something. So this was the first time, <laughs> this was the first time that I was like, no, I really need to do something. And the first, and I said, well, what do I have? Which is an important question for people who want to, you know, fight for social justice. And you know, I always say everyone has a role to play. So I'm sitting there asking me, like, what role can I play? You know, I'm not a community organizer. I'm not an expert on racial justice or systemic racism, you know. But what I have is an ability to make music. So I wrote some more songs. These are songs I never I never even released to anyone. Because it occurred to me in that moment that, like, this literally will kill us like as a species, these ideas of supremacy and, you know, inferiority and the violence that that is, that is justified by these lies, this will render us extinct, right? So I start writing songs about that, you know, I'm taking Dr. King quotes and I'm putting them into songs and stuff like that. But again, the music just wasn't good. <laughs> it just wasn't good. And the reason why the reason why it wasn't good is because it was just like or the reason why I thought it wasn't good actually. I should say the reason why I thought it wasn't good because now I might want to revisit that. But the reason I think that it didn't really connect is because some people when they think that they want to write a song that has a strong message like they instantly go to like a very somber kind of vibe and they stopped being really creative about it, you know? And that was what I did. And the music just wasn't very catchy. So it wasn't until after my awakening in 2016 that some songs about social justice came to me that I really liked. And one of them was the original version of It Doesn't Have to Be This Way. But I think it was about the roots of kind of this stuff. And so that's kind of like a a fuller context of that.
0: I think it's really interesting to hear About the journey for you. So, meeting Carrie and the way that she, like, spoke almost prophetically in a sense into you, you know, saying, like, this is what I see in you, and this is what I see you using your voice for. I think that's really cool. And I I think that can point,
1: that can connect us back here, too. Is like, when she said that, I started crying because my first influence. So my first influence in music, or the person who convinced me that I wanted to do music professionally, was Bob Marley. When I was nine years old, wow. I would sit in front of my mother's record player and listen to the Wailers' Burning and Luton album every single day. And I learned the words to I Shot the Sheriff and Get Up, yes. Stand Up, and I would sing these songs every day as a young person, Right. Um, I also was very much in love with the idea of revolution as a child. Like I would sit in my room and draw pictures and diagrams of the different battles of the American Revolution, you know. And so, like, I've always had these things together. And someone I interviewed a few years ago for my podcast told me that kids tend to understand oppression because of ageism and things like that. Like their parents tend to ru- to run homes like authoritarians and kids can pick up Interesting. on that, you know. Yeah. And so that's probably a part of why at nine years old, I was already really resonating with these messages of get up, stand up. Uh, also, my my older brother was a bully. I was bullied at school. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia as a black kid. Like there was a lot to feel like, you know, I want to stand up to bullies. Right. So when she said that, to, oh, also my father is a reggae musician. So my parents are from Jamaica. They're Jamaican immigrants. My father is a reggae musician. He was making reggae music in Jamaica at the same time as Bob Marley, you know. So, like when she said that, without even really hearing, she didn't know any of that context. She didn't, she didn't know that story. And when she said it, I just started crying. And That's even, so cool. even then though, so I worked with her for several years when I, I lived in New York. After that. And I was still kind of doing this like classic R&B, very romantic music, all this kind of stuff. And she never discouraged me, but she would always say like, yeah, you know, that song is cool. And you need, you need some songs like that that are going to pull people in or whatever. But you really have something to say, you know. She kept saying that to me and I couldn't understand what she was trying to push me to do. And I did write... I'm not saying I never wrote any songs that were about social justice. I did. I wrote some songs about sexual harassment. I wrote some songs about poverty, all this kind of stuff. But again, I'm just being honest. I don't don't think that these songs were very good (laughs) until 2016. So now it's happening, though. What's been happening lately, you know, over the past... I would say especially since last year, I've been really reclaiming my own heritage as a Jamaican-American. Yeah. Which I've always been proud of, but really, really... Like, speaking patois with my family, spending more time on the island, listening to more reggae music. And I've been challenged by people close to me to, like, just really lean in to my family's heritage, which includes Mm -hmm. reggae music, because my father was a reggae musician. And I had been trying to do that, because I released, you know, the Future Reggae album in 2018... Right. You know, like I said, the original doesn't have to be this way. It's a very futuristic reggae reggae album, but it's in a different way now. And so like that, but that encouragement from Carrie that she sees a Bob Marley kind of character when she looks at me. Oh, wait, actually, as I'm thinking about this now, here's a crazy thing, too. So Desmond Child, who wrote Living on a Prayer, right,
0: mm-hmm.
1: for Bon Jovi and uh, Living La Vida Loco for Ricky Martin. he He called me to... You know, I used to work with him a bit in New York as well. And he was doing a music video for another artist. And he calls me and he says, okay, you're going to be a homeless person in this video. And he's got this dreadlock wig, wig, which is very problematic. But just let's let's just put that aside for a second. Right? <laughs> let's just put that very problematic little <laughs> tip it aside. He's got this dreadlock wig that he wants me to wear. And he says, I want for you to embody the spirit of Bob Marley in this video. Right. So, so it's like, this is a way that people had already kind of something people had already been identifying, but I wasn't embracing for for one reason or or another. And, but lately I have been just really accepting the fact that first off, all my songs come out like reggae, reggae songs originally, no matter what they sound like when they're finally produced, they all start as reggae songs and leaning into that. And also leaning into the history of not just bob marley as a musician but bob marley as a anti-imperialist activist Mm. right yeah you know who uses music as a vehicle to criticize white supremacy and colonialism right and to encourage black people to unite to have uh, a shared sense of self-respect and dignity, yeah. and to fight against these forces. Now I come back to this music, this reggae music, and when I listen to Bob Marley's lyrics, he is very straightforward. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. there's not a lot of irony in his lyrics. What he's talking, you know, when he's calling out, you know, injustice and white supremacy. And then he also has like this mix of you know the songs that are mo- that are very popular for us like No Woman No Cry, and Jammin' and One Love and all these things like or um, Three Little Birds, um, is this love? You know, these are songs that people can just relax to, they can dance to, all this kind of stuff. But I, but I know from knowing the story about Marley and the Wailers that. They wrote those songs for Black people. <laughs> they <Right>. were... <laughs>
0: not for Bennigans. Yeah,
1: they they didn't write it so that so that Benegins could play it, you know, at happy hour, you know, right. and yeah. but they wrote these songs because yes, like they they wanted to evoke Black consciousness, but they also understood what it means to live in Babylon, right? And when you live in Babylon, you know, as and if you know that you're not Babylonian and you live in Babylon, because not every oppressed person in an empire understands that they are not actually a part of the empire's project, because empires are very good about lying about themselves and indoctrinating their oppressed people. Yeah. So you need some songs like Get Up, Stand Up, you know, to rouse people and to call people to arms and fight against their oppression. But when you live in Babylon and you know that you live in Babylon and you know that you're not Babylonian, you need some songs that you can relax to as well. <laughs> you know, you can't just listen to all of the, you know, all of the, um, you know, let's let's fight songs or all the songs right. that point to the suffering that you already know that you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. You also need some songs that you can chill out to, you know, or that just make you feel good and give you a good vibe. And so that is actually what I'm trying to do with my music now, is Mm -hmm. to have some songs that have more songs that are, you know, directly teaching about social justice, exposing social justice, social injustice. But I'm also thinking about, like, our friend Tina, like when she goes to sit by the pool or to go do yoga by the pool during the day, like what does a black woman who was a black queer woman fighting against racial racial in, injustice, what is what is a song that they want to play for themselves? Because that's my service to other black people, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, especially black people who are in the struggle.
0: I have a question for you. Something that I'm thinking about, and I, it kind of goes back a little bit. But you know, you're talking yeah. about there's this evolution that you have been through musically and personally professionally and i'm curious like what do you think caused tension for you in fully embracing who you are in fully embracing your jamaicanness and your family heritage and yeah. the music that was essentially like given to you yeah. in a sense
1: yeah and there's a lot that goes into it, and I think that these are this is an example of like the personalist political, right? So you have there there's several factors. One is that there are some Jamaicans who feel like if you're not born on the island, then you're not Jamaican, right? So that's one thing. So my mother made sure that my my siblings and I understood where we came from and what our heritage is we went back to jamaica every two years every other year you know throughout my childhood and so and even before i was old enough to know because i saw i found a picture of me the other day as a child as like a an infant in my mother's arms in Ocho Rios, right and I didn't realize that even before I could remember, she was taking me back to that island, you know. And she made sure that we knew the pledge of allegiance, we knew the national anthem, we knew the coat of arms, we knew the national fruit and the national bird, and we and we sang. We knew folk tales about Anansi, and we you know knew Jamaican folk music and all that kind of stuff. You know, we knew all that stuff. But when I would go to Jamaica as a child, my cousins would call me Farina, Yankee, and Farina, and all those things. And so I. Didn't feel like... So even though I was very proud to be of Jamaican heritage, I knew Jamaican family members that didn't consider me Jamaican. So that was one thing. Um, and that's that stuck with me for a long time. But even one day, I remember my mother said, to, said that to me. She was like, you're not Jamaican, you know? And I was old enough at this point, and I said to her, I said, Mackie, uh-huh. you can't say that to us because... This country, America, doesn't want us here. And if you say that we're not Jamaican, then where do we belong? Right? So I think that was a big part of it. And then growing up in America, as you know, growing up as a, having a Black American experience, I felt like people, I, mean, I felt like Americans didn't really understand reggae right? Like, as a tradition. you know. And I still don't, like, I saw Eric Andre the other day, the comedian Eric Andre, he was talking about the intro to Cops. And he was like, how are you gonna put reggae music at the beginning of Cops? Like, you know, reggae music is like, come to the beautiful island in the sun. And I'm like, no, Eric Andre, that is not what reggae music is about. So, Jimmy Cliff put out a, a reggae album in 2012. And Jimmy Cliff is one of the, you know, one of the biggest names in reggae music ever. He's one of the founders. He sang, the, his like, one of his famous hit songs was, You can get it if you really want. You know, that's, that's Jimmy Cliff. So, Jimmy Cliff in 2012 released an album. And on that is a song called Reggae Music because reggae musicians love writing songs about reggae music. <laughs> and... In the song, he says, Reggae music will always be here for oppressed people fighting against tyranny. That is what reggae music is. That's the tradition of reggae music.
0: Yeah. But
1: growing up, that's not what I under. Well, I understood it from when I was a kid, but also there's this whole season of racial gaslighting from the, the white world that really kind of separated me from my Blackness in general for many years. Mm-hmm. It's like a brainwashing you know, that happened you know, from my youth up until, like, I would say, you know, maybe, like, 20... No, actually, I think around 2006 is when it really started to break. Like, a little crack, you know, and then it started, the crack got way bigger by, like, 2014, and then 2016, I was done, you know, and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Being Black is very important to me. So, I mean, anyway, that is a part of what I think made it difficult. So i'm been i'm i'm on a decolonizing journey and that decolonizing journey was accelerated last year when i decided to go i decided to move back to jamaica you know i decided to move to jamaica with my family and there were a couple of moments that happened one my cousin delroy he's his he's 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 in the age bracket that his name sounds like he's an elder right Delroy texted me in Jamaica while I was quarantining, so I hadn't even met him yet, but he had my number because his sister, my cousin Pat, is kind of like an aunt to me. She, she cooked for me and my siblings when we were growing up. She helped, she helped my mom take care of us, you know? So Pat had given Delroy my number. Delroy texted me and he said, welcome home, And, I mean, I'm choked up talking about it now because, you know, I grew up having this kind of ambivalence about it. Like, my cousins called me Yankee, they called me foreigner. I didn't understand what they meant, except for it just made me feel like I didn't belong there you know, my mother taught me everything about what it means to be Jamaican. And then at one point said that we're not Jamaican because we weren't born there. And I understand what she, I understand what she means by it now, but at the time it felt like, no, you can't take that away from, don't take that away from us. Right. So that was one thing. Delroy texted me, welcome home. And after I was out of quarantine, I spent like almost every day with Delroy. He, cause he's a driver and he took me and Tina was in Jamaica with us and we everywhere we went Delroy took us right one evening Delroy says to me no i asked Delroy because i was really you know i was planning on moving there and i remembered my cousins calling me yankee and foreigner and i said Delroy do you think that i would be welcomed back to jamaica if i moved here do you think i'd be welcomed by by people who have lived there their whole lives and he said what you mean man <laughs> He said, what you mean, man? You're Jamaican. You're Jamaican. You can go, you can go to, you can go to immigration and get your Jamaican passport now. You can do it today. Amazing. He said, Your, your mother born here, your father born here, your grandmother born here, your grandmother born here, you're Jamaican. And that was like a really, that was a really um that moment meant a lot to me. So I start asking my dad if I can just speak in Patua with him from now on, because I wanted to, you know, I want to blend in, you know. When you go back to Jamaica as someone who's part of the diaspora, you know, the way that you walk, the way that you dress, the way that you talk signals that, you know, you didn't grow up there, <laughs> you know. Um, so my dad and I, so I asked my dad if we could just speak in Patua from now on, and he agreed. So one day I'm talking to him. And, he's, and I'm, I'm asking him the same question as Delroy. And he said, he said, Chooch, when they call you foreigner, them not tell you, say, that you no belong there. Them not tell you, because when, when them see a German, them not say, oh, them no call German foreigner, they call him German. And when they, see a, when, they call a, when they see a Englishman, they call him foreigner, they call him Englishman, they call him, they call him British. But when them call you a foreigner, what they must say is that you are one of we, but you did born a foreign. Right? So basically what he said is that when they call you a foreigner, they're saying that you are a Jamaican that was born in another country. They're not saying that you don't belong there as a Jamaican. So that was a huge lesson. And in in chatting pato because when we when we when we talk about pato, we don't we don't speak patwa in Jamaica. We chat patwa. So when I so when I chat patwa with 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 my dad, he said, "Andre, fi chat patwa with freedom." And I didn't really understand what he was saying, but the more that I would chat patwa with him, was the more that I understood that when he says that to chat patwa is our freedom, that we're literally first off, it's one way that we're connecting to our ancestors. Because in Patois, Patois is a mix of African, several African dialects, and I mean words from different African languages, Spanish, and English, right? And this is the language that people who were oppressed by British imperialism, which is the same imperialism that established thirteen colonies, and you know that America was based on, right? That these 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 black people who were Oppressed by the British Empire in Jamaica, this is the language that they spoke, and they they invented this language partly. You know, I I don't like it when people say that our ancestors they spoke Pato because they couldn't pronounce the King's English or the Queen's English. I don't think that they wanted to. I think that they invented a language in their brilliance so that they could communicate with one another, and that is what empowered them to you know plan revolutions right under their oppressors' noses, right. So when we're and and by the way, you know, when we talk about this, like it's it's it was white arrogance that convinced the colonizers that the slaves were stupid because they couldn't speak the king's English, but they didn't think of themselves as stupid for not being able to understand Pato. They didn't even bother trying, right? Of course. So when I chat pato with my father, and he and I the more that I chat pato with him and my cousins now and, and all that, is the more that I understand that or the more that i feel like every time that i completely mangle the language that the colonizers tried to try to force on my ancestors that this is an act of liberation um france says that the more french an antillian speaks the more white he becomes in his uh, book i think it's the wretched of the earth no it's black skin white masks because he's from he's from the Antillean Islands and, you know, they were colonized by the French. So he said the more French that an Antillean speaks, the more white he becomes, because with that language comes a worldview. There comes a logic about how we process the world. There comes. Yeah, there's a logic that comes with the language. And so, like, as I speak Patois, chat Patois, you know, I started to feel like, oh, wow, there are all kinds of questions about what does it mean to be an intelligent person? Right. What does an intelligent person sound like? Right. Um, do they sound British? Right? And do they emulate, you know, uh these kinds of norms of white imperial culture? All that kind of stuff was just packed into me learning to speak Patwa. I start I started waking up in the morning and my inner monologue was in Patwa. And I really it really freaked me out at first because I was like, I was thinking in Patwa now and translating into English. And I it started to occur to me that there is a version of Andre that is completely free of all of the stipulations and expectations that this anti-black world has put on him, right? The person that they were trying to shape me into being and and yeah. and force me into being, right? There's an Andre that is free of that stuff. And the more patwa that I chat is the closer I'm getting to him, right? All of that is kind of tied into this question for me, you know, um, about that journey. I'm on a decolonizing journey and a part of my embracing my roots and embracing this tradition, this tradition of Jamaican anti-imperial music is a part of that decolonizing journey for me, right? And another part of that decolonizing journey is also refusing to let white people commodify me as their anti-racist concierge, right? Their anti-racism concierge, right? So so I'm going to continue to do what I've been doing, right? And that is, you know, calling out white supremacy, organizing against white supremacy, you know? But it can't be that we do this in a very white way, which is, you know, to professionalize it, and make it linear and, you know, to streamline it for your consumption, you know, like, yeah, like all of that. I mean, some of that is a part of it because it makes it easier to digest, but, but we have to always remember that racial oppression is experienced personally in people's bodies. Right. And it has bodily effects and bodily consequences. And the way that we've, the way that we fight it, I mean, at least the way that I've been fighting it has been in an embodied way. It's been always about embodiment, you know, lugging a stone around the Los Angeles area for six months to show the burden of racism on the Black psyche is a very embodied way of of making this point point yeah. <laughs> doing this process. And music is another embodied way to do that.
0: You know, one of the things that I've really been focusing on a lot is how do i contribute to the commodification of people of a message right like we've got these online forums and i think on one hand it's a beautiful brilliant space to imagine and create and cultivate and and create change but that is a double-edged sword as well because we're in this constant consumption mode so it's like how do you engage on a platform or on these platforms that are literally designed to commodify people and movements. And is there even a way to engage in that well where you don't do that? So I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what does it look like when people are turning you into the anti-racism concierge? (laughs) Like how does that show up for you?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that honestly, so when i feel this way is when people compartmentalize what i'm saying about racial justice from music right because i think that what they're saying is like no andre see like you create these different products right and this is the product that i want to get from you and that other product that you create is something i don't really care about right yeah and i'm like well i'm not i don't want to shame anybody for doing that like and I can't control how anybody engages so like that's that is how that is what it is right but it also I think that it when it becomes an issue for me is when it becomes pressure right so it's like oh well you should be creating this or you should be creating that because that's what i want right like let's be real like if you want it to be that transactional then you've got to give me more money for that right <laughs> like if you want for it to be transactional in that way But I think that what people forget, and I don't know how many Black activists feel this way, but sometimes I do feel this way with me, is that I think sometimes people forget that I am actually a Black person. And what I mean by that, what I mean by that is that I think that they forget that, like, I am dealing with the trauma of living in an anti-Black world you know, that there's generational trauma. There is secondary trauma from hearing about all these people who are being killed by the police at a disproportionate rate. There is personally experienced trauma from my own encounters with racism and systemic racism and trying to fight systemic racism. So that that boulder is something I'm still carrying, you know, even though I'm not physically carrying a 100-pound boulder. That was always a symbolic action to... to make the invisible burden visible, right? And so that's when it starts feeling like, okay, the reason why I, I go into that I'm saying that when people lose track of the fact that when I'm writing about racism, when I write an article, when I post an Instagram post or whatever, like, I'm not doing this as just like a hobby, right? This is not like an interest in football or something like that. Like this is self-defense for me, right? I do what I do because I am not safe in the world <laughs> right now, right? Right, right. And I want the world to be safer for people like me. And that's why I have a weekly email. That's why I write a, a monthly column for RNS. That's why I have a medium blog post. That's why I have a YouTube channel where I've done, you know, video blogs about racism and, and systemic racism. That's why I write songs and talk about police brutality and stuff like that. Why people consume these things and they forget, I'm not doing it for you, <laughs> right? This is not for, this is not actually for you ultimately, right? I'm speaking this truth in the world because the white world is gaslighting us and has been gaslighting us for centuries on a systemic level. Right. When you go to Stone Mountain Park in in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and they don't have any record of the Ku Klux Klan's involvement in building that Confederate monument. They don't have any rec- they don't they don't tell you about how the Ku Klux Klan was reborn on that very rock in November of 1915 and how it was relaunched there that's gaslighting When when the president of the United States is calling you know, calling majority black countries shithole countries, and saying that the people in Charlottesville who march the streets with tiki torches, chanting Nazi slogans, are very fine people and trying to both sides the issue. and everyone's sitting around here talking about, well, how do you know he's racist? Is it really racist? It's gaslighting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I stand up and I post on Twitter, America is a racist country, It's a fundamentally racist country on a hard pill mean, right? That's me fighting back against the gaslighting. That's being put on me and other people that look like me, right? The fact that white people and not the the fact that white people benefit from me doing that is a side effect, right? And it's it's like it's collateral benefit. You know? Well,
0: it's you know, something that I've learned in the last couple of years is in our capitalist mindset and approach a lot of times white people in their consumption of this stuff they almost look at anti-racism as a way to self-improve it's like this is my self-improvement work right and this is something that's all taking place in the head and it's not because it's not embodied it's not taking place in a person's literal lived experience
1: right and so so I think that I think that when people approach it in this way right like I know that you're getting something out of it and that's great. That's fine. Right. Like I I think it's great that you're getting something out of it. But also remembering that the point is actually not (laughs) that I create something for your consumption. Right. But that there are still people like me who even if there weren't thousands of people following me online, if there weren't graphics and there wasn't well-produced content, even if I just went out on the street and I yelled this from the sidewalk as loud as I can, that this is a necessary activity for people who are being psychologically, you know, attacked in this way all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how that attitude might also change the way that people support different artists. Because when I talk to That's- Nikki Black, who is a black, brilliant, black, womanist, you know, uh, educator, anti-racist educator. But Nikki Black is a poet. (laughs) And if there were no white supremacy to fight, Nikki Black would be writing more poetry and doing more poetry performances and all that kind of stuff, right? And she wouldn't be writing poetry about you know the struggle and being a black woman and white supremacy and all that kind of stuff, right?
0: Do people think MLK wanted to do what he did?
1: No. Do you no, want he, to be
0: likened to MLK? Yeah. You know, he didn't,
1: he didn't want to be. He didn't want to do that, but he had to, mm-hmm. right? And I think that right. if people kept that in mind, that they might show up for black black anti racism educators and activists differently, right? Because right. you know. So when somebody says, like, well, I'm here for this content, you know, you know, that they're taking for themselves, it's like, that's fine. And at the same time, how can you show up to support that person who is taking their time and energy and money to to fight against a system that is out to kill him? Right, And this is something
0: that I want to talk about a little bit. So, you know, with the boulder, like for people who are listening, there was a point where when you were carrying this boulder around, there were people who started offering to carry this boulder around for you, right? yeah um mm-hmm. so so how do people like i was having a conversation with somebody the other day um for another yeah. podcast Sundri malcolm and she talked about how like because she's in the yoga world and she was talking about how you know a lot of white people in the yoga world will be like i just need to chill and relax and not get caught up in the negative and she's like no that's what I need to do. And if you want to be an accomplice in this work, you need to get your ass on the ground and you need to do the work so right. that I can chill and meditate. And so it just reminds me of that. Like, how do people support your work? How can people support your work?
1: Um, so I think that like, I'm fortunate to have several people in my life And who follow me, who are like a part of, you know, who are part of the Hope Club, (laughs) you know, that understand like the toll that the work takes on me and, you know, they are, they're involved. So this is where we, I think actually this is where we kind of hit back on the capitalistic part, right? I have wrestled with like, what are, what are actual models that could be used that are not this kind of highly transactional, capitalistic, commodifying, you know, um, system. And I don't have a full answer for that. Like, I have not fully conceived of some kind of relationship that can exist within this capitalist structure that we live in that completely defies it, you know. And anyone who has that, I mean, I'm welcome to, to have that conversation with them. So, I had to make a decision, or this is the decision that I felt like I had to make a couple years ago. Where I said, okay, well, I have to work because that's how our society is set up, right? I I need money to live, right? And I could I could make money doing something that I hate, right? I could I could make money doing something that is unethical, right? Or I could figure out how to make money to do the work that I actually am passionate about and is meaningful and is ethical. I don't, th- I don't see any version of my life where I'm not fighting against racial justice. I think that that is what I'm doing now. I, even when I think, well, I... Maybe I can just, like, stop doing this because it's so exhausting. Like, it bothers me, right? Again, I don't feel safe in the world. And for if we're, when we're talking about trauma, oftentimes it's fight, flight, or freeze. And I am in fight mode, right? But I thought about the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul also felt very driven, like, to deliver this message about Jesus, you know, to the world. But the Apostle Paul also realized that he had to make money, right? And so Paul made tents sometimes, right? Like he 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 put together some tent making business so that he could fund himself. Movements need money because we live in a system that where you know if you don't have resources, you can't do anything. Actually, I'm making my way through Dr. King's book, Why We Can't Wait, about the Birmingham campaign. Because I'm really trying to like master the civil rights movement. I really want to dig deeper into the detail of the civil rights movement. And I just read the chapter last night where he and the SELC called a meeting in New York City at Harry Belafonte's house or apartment. Sorry. And Harry Belafonte raised seventy five thousand dollars that night. For the Birmingham campaign, and uh, Dr. King says that he would sometimes be on the phone with Harry Belafonte two, three times a day, figuring out how he could support the movement. I bring all that up to say that, like, I decided that my version of tent making was going to be um, creating more music and more of kind of like this lifestyle stuff, you know, around what I'm doing because the work that I do on the ground for racial justice. I don't post about that stuff online. It's a security issue.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I don't post what I'm doing and who I'm doing it with and all that kind of stuff. But I'm deep into that, you know, I'm deep into that stuff. But that's the stuff that I don't like. I don't get paid to do. I use my time to do it. But I need to have a lot of time and a lot of autonomy to be able to do that kind of work. And so the more people that stream the music, the more people that that buy, you know, the physical products like CDs, vinyl, you know, the more people that buy t-shirts, the more people that sign up for Patreon, like all of that creates the margin and the space for me to do the studying that I do about social movements, to do trainings with activists on the ground, all that kind of stuff like yeah, you're funding something much bigger than just like a weekly email or or that. But even that is is a part of that too. So I mean, so when people are putting money into that, like they're they're allowing me to have the time and autonomy to study and to teach, you know, these things. Um, not that it's not important for me to be able to just create music because that's important too.
0: Well, that's I mean, and that's where I'm at.
1: Yeah. Yeah, just like, listen, Andre needs to make music, so...
0: (laughs) Also, yeah, like, I I want... Just listening to you talk about your story and the impact that it's had on you physically and emotionally, right? And knowing so many other people as well and seeing that, it's like, I want to just celebrate and support your joy and doing the work that you love to do in all of its forms, in all of its capacities. And without... The desire for an exchange, you know, like I, if, right. if you don't send out another email, if you don't post another thing to Hope and Hard Pills, like that's okay. That's where I am, though, yeah. right? And that's where yeah. I would like other people to get to to be able to understand that this is an essential part of resistance work as well.
1: Yeah. I and mean, we have, or we have roles to play, you know, and a part of it is like, listen, like. The whole point of doing that work is so that Black people can have joy. Like, that's the whole point of doing this anyway. We want to have joy. And what happens, and Tina and I have talked about this, Corey and I have talked about this, what happens so often is that Black people get into the fight to free Black people, and we end up being burdened by white white people's expectations to be served in this space. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that it is important the ways the biggest ways to support, you know, me are Patreon. That's a huge way because there are a ton of expenses that that are involved in what I'm doing. I mean, there's there's expense to having the Mailchimp, you know, account to send out that weekly email. There's the expense of the website. There's the expense of studio time. There's the expense of paying, you know, people to help, you know, create graphics and and keep things consistent online and all that kind of stuff. People who are, like we say, everyone has a role to play, and movements need resources, right? So one way that people can be a, can be involved in that is by, you know, I think that the Hope and Hard Pills subscription is less than like I think it's less than a Netflix subscription, right? Um, you know, oh, yes, for the, same, you know, for a similar, you know, for a similar amount, you know, people can be a part of the work that I'm doing and they can't do, they can't, they can't play the role that I'm playing, right? Like they can't write my songs and deliver my speeches and, you know, write my articles and stuff like that, but they can be a part of it by providing some of the resources that give me the the time to do those kinds of things. That's a huge one, Patreon. I would think the next like the next tier of like support is is the store right the store for me is an engine of many things right it it allows it provides the resources for me to create more music it also provides the resources it also provides time right and and creates space for me to be able to study social movements do trainings with people you know all the kind of stuff like the more autonomous that I can be, you know, without having to work for USPS or something like that and try to do this in my spare time. Right. Is the more that I can create, you know. There are folks who, whenever we put out a shirt, they're getting it, you know, they're buying it. And that's really helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I almost joked and said, like, this is one of the rare days I don't have one of your t shirts on. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the same way that they would support any other artist, you know, like sharing music, you know, streaming the music, all that stuff. You know, it just all of that stuff helps to kind of amplify the message in the work.
0: One of the things that you have really taught me over the years is the importance of the role that hope plays in this work. What gives you hope?
1: Well, yeah, you know, the thing that really makes me hopeful, and I say this a lot when people ask me about hope, that like I have a very specific definition or a very a specific idea of what hope is. Right. I don't think that hope is some kind of like inexplicable belief that everything's going to be OK. Like, I, I don't think that that's hope. I think in some cases that's optimism. In other cases, I think it's delusion. Hope to me is uh, is about memory it's about understanding what has what history has always has already proven to be possible right and understanding that you know if it happened before it could possibly happen again sometimes maybe the thing hasn't happened before right <laughs> so like there's there's still occasions for hope but for me usually it's looking back on you know what history has proven and what history has proven about social change is that a committed minority, even of oppressed people, have the power to topple dictators, to beat down systems of oppression, to liberate themselves. History shows that, right? That's the thing that makes me hopeful and keeps me hopeful, right? And I, because I understand that it only takes a few of us, about three and a half percent of the population, it only takes a few of us to make huge changes. Like that is the thing that keeps me going.
0: So within that context... One of your passions being the power of everyday people, right? To change the world. Yeah. What do you see as a major block for people to get off their yeah. asses and do? And and how would you, like, what do you think is most empowering for people?
1: I think that people just really don't know these things, right? Like people, I think more people would be active if they felt like they had clear direction, you know? And if they felt like they, and if they knew, like if they were convinced of the power that we have to do these things together. I mean, I didn't know these things. And before I knew these things, I also wasn't very active, you know? And then once I started like reading about social movements and reading about, you know, yeah, reading about uh, people power and all that kind of stuff, you know, I was convinced, I mean, to, to, to a degree where now I feel like if I'm not active, then there's something unethical about that because I know how powerful, you know, we are.
0: Interesting.
1: So I think that people need to know the stories of ordinary people who have fought against oppression, and one, people need to understand how these things can work. And I mean, I've seen in my own in my own work that people tell me like they're more active because they heard me speak on the next question or they heard me speak at a rally somewhere, or they, you know, they're on my email list and they've gotten involved in all these different things. But here's what I want to say to that too. I'm not the only, I mean, I'm not the only person who can just tell people about the three and a half percent rule and tell people about the social view of power, the pillars of power stuff like that. Anyone can do that. Right. And so, you know, people who are listening now, you know, you know, I would say like, read you know or watch a documentary or something about these stories you know the civil rights movement and all these other movements and tell people talk to people about them you know
0: who inspires you
1: uh yeah so many people inspire me um i mean bob marley we've talked about him a lot but right now like i would say like he is really inspiring me again in a way that i hadn't expected him to you know i'm seeing how like his his passion for music and his really his gift for music and his passion for black liberation have intersected in a way that's been really beautiful and has changed the world. you know it's influenced you know an entire yes yeah, and it it brought reggae to the main stage and not just that, but like these messages of of um I guess hope is the word, yeah, this like hope and revolution so. He's a huge influence. He's a huge um, inspiration to me right now. Um, I also think of like, you know, there are just a lot of really amazing activists and organizers in the world that are, that are, you know, just doing great work too. That really inspire me right now.
0: Awesome. Now I want to go back to your music. Cause there were some things that you talked about in the Twitter space that I don't know if you want to talk about here about some of the, Verses of your songs.
1: Yeah. I love to talk about, you know, like how this stuff is showing up. So, like I said, when I listen to this version of it doesn't have to be this way, I hear, I hear a song that 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 Andre in 2017 couldn't have written. You know, the the it doesn't have to be this way I wrote in 2017 was still me learning. You know, I was still trying to learn how to really write about, to write conscious music, basically, right? And what I've learned is that it's a lot easier to write conscious music when you really have a point of view.
0: <laughs> right. When you have identity, to, you know, like all those things are, yeah, totally.
1: When you, really have, when you really have a point of view. And I had enough of a point of view in 2017 to write, it doesn't have to be this way. I knew it didn't have to be this way. But I, okay, between that version of It Doesn't Have to Be This Way and this version of It Doesn't Have to Be This Way, there are countless books on systemic racism and nonviolent struggle that I've read. There are relationships with, you know, people who have started international movements and toppled dictators in other countries that have been formed between those two songs. Between those two songs, there's six, ish. No, 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 no. There's five years of organizing direct actions and planning campaigns and working with people on the ground. There's there are there are marches in the streets in the wake of you know police killings. You know, like there's and there's also you know my struggle to understand what it, what it means to be hopeful in between those two songs where I discovered, you know, hope as a practice, as a discipline, as a habit that we keep, you know? And so (laughs) when I listen to the song now, that's what I mean by Andre in 2017 couldn't have written this song because, you know, Andre in 2021 knows what it's like to lead, you know, a few hundred people down down a street and to block an intersection, you know? Which is what that first verse is about. 500, 500 footsteps stomp on the pavement, 500 fists clenched high in the air, cardboard and banners waving, hear the sirens wailing, 500 voices shouting for change, you know? Like, I didn't do those things when I wrote the first, <laughs> it doesn't have to be yeah. this way, you know? I was mm-hmm. just starting to be a part of those things, right? But now I've been a part of many, right so I know what that sound I know what that sounds like so I can describe that scene. I can pull people into that scene, you know and imagine you know saying like if all lies matter to us, tell me why some sleep on the street street at night, if all lies matter, why do the bombs fly? If everyone has their worth and love is what we deserve, why do they keep their knees on our necks right like that's I mean that's me like pulling from the fact that systemic racism it has to do with poverty, right? It has to do with militarization and war and stuff like that, right? Pulling it into the song in that way. I didn't have an international perspective on race on systemic racism in 2017 when I wrote the first one. But I do now, <laughs> right? Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure.
1: And um you know, I can pull that in and then of course my my the second verse of this song Right now is like that's just one of the favorite my favorite things I've ever written, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know. because this is this is like you know me. I'm hinting at the three and a half percent rule. I'm hinting at the view of social power that says you know we are we are ruled by our consent. Yeah, yeah. You know? Without our consent, the status quo can't be can't be sustained. So when I say, so when I say we are like gods and don't even know it, whatever we do becomes history. I'm talking about what we can accomplish through direct, through direct action. You know, they may have the guns, but we have the poets is a quote from Howard Zinn, you know, that I read as I was studying hope, right? These, this is something that I hold deep in my heart and I'm sharing it with people, you know, and then finally, I'm not going to go through every single line, but like, I do want to just point out like the second too, is like when he says, And we refuse to accept whatever's left after the 1% eats, right? Like, again, like pulling this, you know, connecting, you know, racism and capitalism, oligarchy, you know, all this. It's like, I wouldn't have been able to write this song without five, six years of reflection, study, and experience. So that's why I'm so excited about it. I'm excited to share it with the world. And also I'm excited that people who've been following me and people who will follow me now, also like they can share this with people and it's not going to feel like a lecture or something like that. Like it's going, you know, like this is a fun piece of music that has a lot of meaning.
0: I really appreciate the backstory on that now clearly we want people to buy your music download your music and it doesn't have to be this way is available on juneteenth so probably by the time this goes to production it will be out other than that where can people find you and follow you
1: um the best place is my website andrehenry.co you know there are links to my social media there if people want to find me there you know but you know, joining the the email list is always helpful. You know, I send out a weekly email with information about social change, social progress, updates about music and whatever projects I'm working on. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's there's, you know, every way that you can contact me, I think you can find from there. Um, and then, like, you know, I have a text number that people can text me at. You know, if you find me on on social media, which is super easy, Andre Henry on Twitter DeAndre Henry everywhere else.
0: All right. Thanks for coming on Story Power Podcast and chatting with me.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me.